That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, folks. As we've seen, a lot can change in four years when it comes to U.S.-China relations. Things have gotten so bad that the very foundations of global stability are now under threat. However, the U.S. is about to have an election you may have heard of, which may drastically change the direction of things for better or for worse. That is why on November 11th and 12th, SubChina is hosting our fourth annual Next China Conference online. This year, we are gathering together China specialists from all different fields to discuss what impact the elections will have on the next four years of U.S.-China relations. If you are connected to China, this is a conference you will not want to miss. The event is free for SubChina Access subscribers. Now, that is a great reason to subscribe. Go to events.subchina.com to get your tickets and to learn more about our unbelievably great lineup of speakers. That's events.subchina.com. We hope to see you there. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. And visit SubChina.com to check out our wide range of reported pieces, op-eds, videos, and, of course, podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is Jeremy Goldcorn, a.k.a. Jinyumi, the colorful character whose escapades and narrow escapes are at the center of the next Bradley Hope and Tom Wright book, Thousand Dollar Whale. Jeremy, greet the people. <laughs> 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 yeah, okay. Uh, okay, I'm gonna boo, uh, I'm gonna stop booing. You can boo that one. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, it relates yeah, to what we're right. talking about today. So today we are delighted to have as our guest Sebastian Strangio. I had the great pleasure of getting to know Sebastian during the couple of years he spent in Chapel Hill, uh, where I live, from 2016 to 2018, uh, where his son was born. Anyway, we had many, many long and occasionally quite well lubricated talks on everything from history and politics to music and Sichuan cookery. And I actually owe him for turning me on to uh, great headphones, these One More headphones, which I've, I've actually endorsed on the show before, and to the music of Scriabin, uh, which torments me to this day. Uh, Sebastian, <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian is the author of the 2014 book Hun Sen's Cambodia. And over beers in Chapel Hill, he told me about his new book project, which was published just last month and which I just cannot say enough good things about. The book is In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. And it's a tour de force about the fraught and complicated relationships that the nations of Southeast Asia have with the continental colossus uh, to their north. It's a book that's 
full of on-the-ground reporting from the offices of heads of state to these you know, garish Chinese-funded gambling towns in Burma and in Cambodia. Uh, China aside, it's just a great book if you want to learn more about this important region. And the writing is just wonderful uh, with that quality that I really prize, where it just never gets in the way. It allows all this, you know, the zooming in and the zooming out to be done really seamlessly. Uh, and it's really only noticeable when it offers up the delightful turn of phrase here and there. Sebastian, uh, congratulations on this fantastic book, and welcome to Seneca. Thanks a lot, Kaiser. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to finally have you on the show. Yeah. Sebastian, welcome. In the introduction to your book, you talk about how history and geography have set China's momentum inexorably southward. And in your chapter on Vietnam, you have someone pointing out how on a map, Vietnam almost looks like a woman bearing the huge weight of China, which sounds like a very unpleasant thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about why this is so and how it's a bit like the United States' westward expansion or, or Russia's drive eastward? And are you suggesting that the current push has anything to do with the historic southward movement? subconsciously or otherwise? Well, I think that the, the, the southward drift of the Chinese, various Chinese empires has its roots in the, the security dilemma that many of the Chinese empires faced, which was overwhelmingly a northern concern. I mean, these are empires that faced invasion and various depredations from the steppe peoples of the north and west. And so, of course, the, the great walls of China were built in the north. And, you know, to the south, there were no such powers that could seriously threaten the imperial center. And so there was a natural southward drift. This wasn't something that happened all at once. It was a long process of, you know, in-migration, you know, the slow extension of the Chinese imperial uh, administrative state and, uh, and logistical networks and the gradual annexation of, of new regions and their uh, stitching into the empire. And I think that same, you know, I argue in the book that that same sort of freedom to the south exists today. You know, to the, you know, to the north, you have um, north and west, you have Russia. To the south, west, you have India. Off the eastern coast, you have a string of U.S. treaty allies, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines. Southeast Asia remains a region where there is no incumbent great power. And so it's the one place where the Chinese state is able to sort of break out of the chain of encirclement that they've always perceived as being, uh, you know, uh, as closing in on them. Uh, and so there is sort of a resumption, there has been a resumption of this historical drift to the south. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That sense of insecurity and uh, encirclement almost makes them even more anxious about uh, any uh, additional encirclement happening out of Southeast Asia, uh, interestingly. So, Sebastian, before we get into specific countries, let's talk about some of the sort of big picture region-wide issues. Uh, at the top of that list is what does China ultimately want in the region? Uh, clearly, you know, aside from its claims to the South China Sea, uh, you don't see China as literally expansionist. Uh, you also don't agree with those who've suggested that China's goal is to supplant the, the so-called international rules-based order led by the United States. And, and you don't see it as quite the revisionist power that, that a lot of people do. So how would you describe then what China's intent is vis-a-vis -vis Southeast Asia? I think China wants what it once had. It wants to be the top dog in the region, and it wants to be respected as such. And that, of course, 
for Southeast Asia is a pretty serious demand. I think that China's, in terms of the global, you know, the rules-based international order, as some people describe it, I think China's intent is not to overturn this system and erect a new system of rules in its place, rules that are much more repressive and inhospitable to freedom. I think that China simply wants a greater control of the current system as it exists, and it wants to tweak some of the rules to better fit uh, Chinese prerogatives and interests. You know, and this is actually something on which China is aligned with a number of the Southeast Asian nations. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That the, the foregrounding of national, so- the principle of national sovereignty, and this the principle of non-interference, mutual non-interference, is something which a lot of the the Southeast Asian nations, as well as many other nations in the in the global South, uh, are very much in favor of. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, at least in principle. Um, the reality of Chinese interaction with these countries can sometimes create tensions with that. Uh, that concept, and we can talk a bit further about that. Um, but, well, yeah, uh, some- let's uh, let's talk about that exactly. Uh, China's uh, GDP, which was over fourteen trillion dollars in twenty nineteen, was a one hundred and fifty percent that of the entire uh, ASEAN uh, region uh, total for the same year, which was about nine point three trillion. Off the top of your head, do you happen to have the major trade stats, like how many of the 11 nations of Southeast Asia have China as their largest trading partner or stuff like that. I guess what I'm after is a sense of how much is ASEAN constrained in its choices because of its deep economic ties or one might say deep economic dependency on uh, China. Well, the region is, you know, deeply enmeshed with China. Eight of the 10 Association of Southeast Asian Nations member states uh, are um, China's their leading trade partner. Um, on foreign investment, China comes in second to Japan, but it is growing very quickly. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative has has led to a you know surge of uh, Chinese investment into the region. Of course, not all of those projects have eventuated, but the numbers have increased quite considerably. You know, this economic entanglement makes it very difficult for Southeast Asia to to or for Southeast Asian nations to take strong stances against China or to enlist in any sort of anti-China coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, they want the benefits of trading with China. They also want the, you know, to, to benefit from the American security presence in the region. And, you know, herein lies Southeast Asia's predicament in an era of rising Sino-American tensions. They, you know, uh, there, there's American demands that Southeast Asia, you know, forestall its economic relationships with China in various domains have so far fallen on really on deaf ears. Right. American security interests turn out to be, you know, a source of grave insecurity for for China. Sometimes, the other side of all that trade, uh, not just with the region but globally, makes you know parts of that region, especially of particular strategic consequence for China. Uh, you mentioned in your book that I think it's like ninety thousand container vessels, which is half of the, the global merchant shipping tonnage, uh, passes through the Strait of Malacca each year. And I think 80% of China's imported oil, and it imports about 70% of its oil, uh, passes through the strait. So, I mean, that's that's a major vulnerability, no matter how you cut it. I, I wonder whether you think China's strategy in the region actually, though, has made it more vulnerable or less vulnerable. Has it has has the antagonism actually increased the the vulnerability? I think that's a good. You know, one could definitely make that argument that China has always perceived and feared a U.S.-led containment strategy. Right. 
But the very actions that China's taken to forestall such a containment has only, you know, increased the interest of major powers to constrain Chinese ambitions. And right. so you, you sort of see the Quad to, to be revived and to become more coherent in its approach toward China. India's gradually um, being coaxed out of its Sebastian, could I, could I interrupt you and just ask for a quick, uh, like, one-line definition of the Quad? Because it's been in the news actually today um, as we record this. Well, the Quad is sort of a loose... Uh, I don't know if you would call it's not an alliance, but a loose partnership between India, Japan, Australia, and the United States. And it's sort of, it's being marketed as sort of a, you know, a, a democratic partnership that can help to constrain Chinese assertiveness. Uh, okay, in, great. Thank you. In the Sorry for of the, the interruption. <laughs> of course. And, um, but yeah, I mean, the Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese actions have elicited a response. There's almost a sort of natural... Um, it's almost a natural law that when a you know one great power begins acting in a belligerent way, other powers that feel threatened by it will seek to to you know counteract that uh, those actions. Um, and in the case of China, you know this is one thing that China has to deal with that the United States um, rarely has had to deal with is that the fact that there are powerful rivals in its neighborhood. As I as I mentioned before, you know you have Japan, India, potentially Russia. South Korea, and of course, the United States in the region as well. And so it's not a region in which China can get everything its own way. Right. Whereas in the Western Hemisphere, the United States had, you know, two massive oceans on either side and, and relatively weak neighbors. And I think this, you know, tr trying to, to gain that freedom is a lot of what China's uh, recent assertiveness has been about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're trying to pack the whole Eastern Pacific into the uh, Nine Dash Line. Not easy. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so Beijing typically doesn't like to deal with large organizations with a, you know, a lot of members that are supposed to agree on things, uh, but prefers to deal one-on-one -on -one with uh, countries, especially smaller countries that they can kind of bully around, if I may offer my cynical opinion on this. Um, the, I, I think this is true in the EU uh, and, you know, you see it elsewhere. Uh is this true with respect to ASEAN um, versus individual member states? How much weight does ASEAN as an organization have with China? And are they seeking to sort of undermine it and deal one-on-one -on -one with its member states? This is very much the case. When it comes to the disputes in the South China Sea, China's made it very clear that these are bilateral questions that should be settled in a bilateral manner. This is China's official line. And I think it's, yeah, it's obvious that, you know, in, in bilateral negotiations, China has a, you know, massively lopsided advantage. In terms of ASEAN itself, you know, China has gone through the motions and the rituals of taking part in, um, you know, negotiations, you know, glacial negotiations on a code of conduct in the South China Sea, which would, you know, in theory would, would set down some rules of the road and prevent any disputes from escalating into something uh, more serious. But, you know, th these things are, you know, really should be seen as ways of buying diplomatic time. China right. still sees that its interests are best served in dealing one-on-one -on -one with the countries involved. And ASEAN has always, you know, had the problem on its own end of forging a unified position on China. I mean, you have 10 member states with vastly divergent interests, political cultures, histories, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And these countries see China in very different ways. 
you know, for some countries, China is a protective giant that can keep more uh, proximate neighbors in line, whereas for others, China is the source of threat, and um, and and they're you know they're they're deeply suspicious and fearful of its intentions, and so there's a sort of you know it's it's been as ASEAN expanded its membership after the end of the Cold War to include Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar, um, the interests of the region. Um, or the the ten member states became so much more divergent, mm. and that's um, really made it hard for them to reach any sort of consensus on on important issues. So, Sebastian, one of several through lines in the book, uh, irrespective of what country you're talking about, you know, in in all the chapters of your book, is is the role of ethnic Chinese communities in in the relationship. Uh, I, I should say that it's it, you know it's it's quite a tour of Chinese communities that you offer in the course of the book. Uh, and they all play different roles in the different relationships, you know, the different bilateral relationships. But there are definitely some common themes that emerge. Uh, it's a big, big topic, I know, but maybe uh, you could talk through some of those themes. Well, I think it's important to recognize that the ethnic Chinese have always um, faced challenges in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Um, during the Cold War, many of them were viewed as a fifth column for Beijing and subject to a range of um, discriminatory measures um, by the states of the region. Um, going back further to the colonial period, you know, ethnic Chinese were, were subject to uh, prejudice, discrimination, even violence um, at, at various points. Uh, and so it's important to recognize this background when talking about the, you know, the current Chinese policy toward ethnic Chinese in the region. Over the last few years, President Xi Jinping has begun to, you know, deepen China's outreach to these communities. Right. Um, he's begun to, you know, speak about them as members of the great Chinese family and call upon them to join in the great uh, rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and the building of the China dream. And I think this is, you know, for many of the communities in the region, this is worrying. After the end of the Cold War, when relations between China and um, the ASEAN stats, states began to improve. One of the, the the effects of that was that ethnic Chinese were able to express themselves more fully. They were able to be ethnically Chinese while also loyal members of the nations that they called home. And this acceptance of ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia was really premised on China maintaining a very clear division between ethnic affiliations and political loyalty to the Chinese state. And in you know the Chinese uh, new Chinese nationality law in 1980 clarified that distinction, and and this was really one of the key things that helped uh, pave the way to toward improved relations between China and many of the nations of Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but what we're seeing now is this you know this increasing outreach begin to blur those distinctions once again, um, and you know I think that it it it's reawakening or runs the risk of reawakening dormant fears of dual loyalties right. on the part of ethnic Chinese. It's not doing them any favors. Really. <laughs> it's true. I right. mean, it's all over Southeast Asia we're seeing that. But I'm tempted to, to draw comparisons to how Beijing views Chinese populations uh, in the U.S., for example, you know, where I live. I feel like there's not as much of a claim being made. I mean, people seem to be comfortable with the idea of Chinese Chinese ethnicity and American nationality, uh, and and same is mm. true to an extent. I think probably for Australia, although you know we've we've seen examples you know to the contrary. But in Southeast Asia, that claim uh, is made, even though often 
we're talking about generations upon generations, uh, you know, away mm. from, from China. What, what do you think accounts for that difference? Well, there's a couple of things that complicate the picture in Southeast Asia. Um, the first is that in many parts of the region, ethnic Chinese have, there, there are vocal minorities who've never accepted ethnic Chinese as legitimate members of the national community. Um, in, in Indonesia and Malaysia, particularly Muslim majority countries, uh, you know, there is a rising tide of exclusionary Islamic inflected nationalism, which paints Chinese as a- outsiders to the national right, community. Right. And there's all of these tropes about um, ethnic Chinese bleeding the country, uh, you know, all of these, um, you know, racist tropes that go back many generations in the region. And then the, on the other hand as well, you have, you know, quite a large number of new Chinese migrants who have come to the region since reform and opening, um, particularly since the end of the Cold War, who have established businesses, you know, there, there are tens of thousands of Chinese students and millions of Chinese tourists. And so the Chinese state has a legitimate interest in protecting the, you know, uh, the interests of its citizens abroad. Um, but it's very, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to maintain a clear distinction between card-carrying PRC citizens and ethnic Chinese who've been in the region for a very long time. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. And, you know, it's one of the problems with Chinese cultural outreach is that there's a very, very blurred line between, you know, lingu- promoting the Chinese language and Chinese culture and political questions. These often bleed into each other in the way that China engages with Chinese language institutes and chambers of commerce. Um, and, and I think that that kind of vague distinction between political issues and cultural issues is one of the, you know, one of the main subjects for concern in the region. That's right. China has never gotten completely comfortable with the idea of, you know, sort of Westphalian nation states. It's still kind of got that civilizational take on on it. Mm, That's true. Yeah. And the problem is, is complex even in the United States and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, where you don't have, uh, you know, a necessarily an Islamist like local resistance to the Chinese population. So, I don't think that's a. I mean, it's a complicated uh, matter. Um, Sebastian, there mm. is a really useful concept that you bring up a few times throughout the book: Great State Autism, <laughs> which uh, me being a something of a sort of illiterate when it comes to scholarly works was fairly new to me. It was coined by the historian Eduard Lutwak. And I just love this word, great state autism, uh, particularly as somebody from a small state who's lived most of my adult life in China, now America. I'm sort of aware of like what it means. I think <laughs> I feel it viscerally. I feel it in my bones. Oh, yeah. um, so it's something we've seen with all the great states, whether the United States, Russia, India, and of course, more relevant to our discussion today with China. Can you quickly define the term? And give us some examples of how it manifests itself in China's relationship with Southeast Asian nations. Well, the term, I think, you know, it refers to really the, you know, the difficulty that any large power has in in seeing the detail, in in seeing the granular reality of the nations with which it um, interacts. Lutwak talks about the tendency for large nations to come up with you know, ways of simplifying the world in order that they can grasp it and and make policy towards it. In Southeast Asia, you know, China's particular variant of great state autism has manifested as, 
you know, it's I think it's inability really to engage effectively with any organization or group that lies beyond the remit of the state. I think that, you know, few countries are better at China than at doing state pageantry and pomp. Um, China is very comfortable at dealing with red carpet receptions, state to state and party to party relationships. But when it comes to sort of public diplomacy and outreach, you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party is, is awkward. I don't think they've ever quite grasped that soft power cannot be formulated um, from the top down. It, it really is something that um, emerges unbidden from within a, you know, society, from a society's dynamics. And one of, the, one of the most remarkable things about American soft power is that it often has emerged in tension with cherished American myths and ideals. And, you know, that, that even as, as people may oppose the United States government or, or some of its particular actions, they, they are very much attracted to the American creed and American culture and its many manifestations. So that's, you know, that's one way. What we see in Southeast Asia is Chinese officialdom has a tin ear for public concern. Mm. And even to the very idea that Chinese activities and behaviors could elicit negative reactions to begin with. I think another important manifestation of great state autism is China's policy toward overseas Chinese. We, we mentioned this just before, but the inability to grasp how sensitive this issue is in Southeast Asia, uh, or to, to understand that, but push ahead anyway with a right. deepening outreach is, you know, is, is something that is probably one of the most fraught elements of China's relationship with the region today, and could potentially inhibit quite seriously, China's, the expansion of Chinese influence in the region. You see, I mean, and yet here they are on this supposed charm offensive. Uh, we all know how things are going to end with that. You know, more examples you can cite about, you know, Lutwex, great state autism. Um, you know, China is to soft power what Nickelback is to hard rock, basically. Um, right. But, 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 <laughs> you thought about that for a bit. I, I didn't. There, that, there, that, that, that wasn't spontaneous. It was. There, there, there it like was? Okay, okay. 80,000 okay. students, though, from, from ASEAN who are studying in China in 2016. So it hasn't entirely been a failure, right? I mean, there are, there are people uh, who are very attracted. I mean, I know if you, uh, you know, there, there's like huge fandoms for Chinese uh, you know, costume dramas and stuff like that all over Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, the Chinese, you know, celebrities, these sort of androgynous looking boys uh, in, in these bands, just like Korea a few years ago, um, they're, they're enjoying a huge surge of popularity right now across the region. So, um, you know, it's not all gone disastrously, right? No, I think that's true. I mean, you know, the Cantonese language um, soaps are hugely popular in right. In Singapore and, and, and other parts of the region, although they're dubbed into Mandarin by the Singaporean government um, <laughs> as part of its language policy. But, you know, these things are... Dubbed them into Singlish, um, that would be really fun. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there's definitely a presence there. Um, but I think it's something that the, the Chinese government has done very little to encourage and in many ways is made more difficult. I think that China's basic strategy in the region is, is economic. I think like, good dialectical materialists the Chinese Communist Party figure that, you know, at the end of the day, money is going to win out, um, that that the region will be drawn towards China by the, you know, a thousand threads of economic entanglement, and that, 
you know, ultimately, this will be the thing that that ensures that China's um, achieves its goals in the region and the nations sort of fall in line with its broader strategic aims. Um, <laughs> Cold hard cash is better than Gangnam style. Yeah, right, right. You know, and, and it, one could indeed ask the question, you know, how much does popularity really matter? I mean, I've had this question quite often about, you know, you look at opinion polls and China, you know, China is not popular in many parts of Southeast Asia. The United States is generally more popular amongst ordinary publics, although not um, unequivocally, uh, depends on the country and, and the time. But in general, the United States has a has a has a reservoir of public support sure. and and goodwill that the Chinese state lacks. But there really is, you know, the question of whether you know whether this to what extent this figures in the long run in the long um, term pursuit of Chinese aims right, right, is right. really an open question. It's it's hard to know. Um, so, Sebastian, let's get into some nitty-gritty. Let's get into the individual countries now. I don't know if we have enough time to get into all of them, uh, but it's kind of amazing how it feels uh, reading your book. Like, each of the countries works quite nicely as an illustration of one of the major issues the region as a whole is experiencing in its relationship with China. Mm -hmm. Can you quickly map, map out the themes you decided to focus on with each of the countries you cover, or at least some of them? Oh, it's a big question. Well, so I think I'll, I'll start, you know, I'll go in order. So Vietnam, you know, Vietnam is the nation that is the closest to China geographically, culturally, and politically. Um, in some ways, it's the nation that encapsulates all of the region's dilemmas vis-a-vis -vis China. Right. You know, the, 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 the crushing proximity, the need to remain on good terms with China, and, and the, the economic entanglement with it. Vietnam faces Chinese power on land uh, in terms of, you know, most of the invasions from China, all of the invasions from China have come from land. Um, China's damming of the upper Mekong River has having huge effects in the Mekong Delta, um, a, a, a region where the, the river is too wide to provide to, to dam for hydropower. And so Vietnam gets all of the downsides of China's hydropower development with none of the potential benefits for itself. And it also faces Chinese power at sea. It's a major claimant in the South China Sea. And so, you know, Vietnam, I, I kicked off with Vietnam basically because I think it, you know, it brings together, it faces many of the strategic uh, or encapsulates many of the strategic challenges that the region faces. Yeah, for um, sure. Uh, and maybe if I would throw and add another one, it's it's also got that uh, it's got a government because of its you know shared Communist Party affiliation that's uh, close with China. Sometimes, while it has a population that's very much at odds with China, right? I mean, that's exactly another, another one of those yeah. things. Yeah, and and culturally, it's been so deeply imprinted by by China. Yeah, for sure. Know, the, um, that it it really you know is it's the only nation in the region that that we can really say that of that it's it's really synodic in the way that it um, you know its social structure its political system you know um, its language right all of these things have been you know deeply imprinted um, and indeed these tools that that, that Vietnam has um, borrowed from China have been the very things that have enabled it to avoid absorption by the Chinese Empire mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, historically. So this is a deep irony at the heart of Vietnam-China relations, which makes it in some ways unique in the region. Maybe we can talk about themes and then talk about countries that, that use the use to to, uh, to illustrate them. But like one of those themes that just brought up the sort of the Chinese community and diaspora, although it threads through the whole thing, it seems to be like the really important point in 
uh, the Malaysia chapter, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, Malay nationalism, which has been sort of the driving force of Malaysian politics since independence, has really was really born out of a an anxiety and a fear about ethnic Malay people becoming strangers in their own land. During the British colonial period, um, you know, the authorities imported huge numbers of, of migrants from uh, from southern China and from um, parts of southern India. And by, you know, on the eve of independence in 1957, um, you know, ethnic Malays were actually, for a brief period, a minority in peninsular Malaya. And so this anxiety has continued to resonate in Malaysian politics. Yeah, for sure. You know, the question of Malay prerogatives and, and sort of, you know, policies to prop up um, the Malay people, um, uh, affirmative action essentially for a majority, um, has been a running theme in Malaysian politics um, since independence. And, you know, this this fear that the ethnic Chinese are uh, ep- economically dominant and, you know, um, sucking the country dry is remains a potent trope right. in, in sort of right-wing Malay circles. Yeah, you've got so, that, you know, the, a great example of this. I mean, again, an example of great state autism, although it's being done by a Chinese developer, is the whole how you open that whole chapter about talking about Forest City, which is just amazing. I mean, what yeah. a, what, what a uh, just so tone yeah. deaf. Yeah, yeah re- this remarkable property development, which, you know, was mostly targeted at, uh, at, at PRC citizens, right. you know, at ethnic Chinese from China, um, but it was built, you know, on you know it was going to be built on artificial islands in the Johor Strait across from Singapore. And for any history-minded Malay nationalist, you know, this calls to mind um, the example of Singapore, right. which was expelled from Malaysia in 1965 in large part due to questions about uh, to do with ethnic relations um, between Chinese and Malays. Um, and you know, and then you know, when I when I interviewed um, former Prime Minister Mahathir about this, you know, he he brought up that example. He said that you know, when, when this 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 enclave could, uh, if if it becomes filled up with Chinese, it could end up, you know, separating from uh, Malaysia. Uh, and I think you know, there's a little bit of you know, fear mongering here. I don't I don't think it was likely necessarily to go that way, but it just shows the depth of the. Um, you know, the resonance of this question in Malaysia today. Yeah, I, you know, I, when I uh, was first in China, I used to try and escape in the mid-90s, like 96, 97, by holidays in, in Laos and Thailand and Cambodia and um, Vietnam. And I'd always expected people to be quite respect, uh, receptive to the fact that I spoke some Chinese and was like down with Asians. And nope. I, it always <laughs> shocked me <laughs> at the depth of resentment that I encountered when I said I lived in China. Um, well, that was that but, was um, a, a difficult time. I mean, if it was '97, I mean the Asian financial crisis. And, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I, I know, but it, it's. Um, let me ask a serious question. Uh, Sebastian, um, so you have spent many years living in Cambodia, and you, you've written what many would regard as the book on the Hun Sen regime or uh, government, perhaps we can call it, since we call 
uh, that uh, name for China and the United States. Uh, Cambodia clearly has the closest and probably warmest relationship with China of any Southeast Asian nation. But even so, there are many, many problems. And you write Sihanoukville, which I visited when before the uh, casinos opened, when it was uh, like a banana town. Um, Sihanoukville uh, has... Uh, become uh, or became at least briefly a den of iniquity for Chinese gamblers and revelers, although one has to say it was always a den of iniquity of one kind or another. <laughs> um, Correct. But can you talk about that a little bit and the, the popular Cambodian reaction to these developments in Sihanoukville? Well, you know, to understand Cambodia's embrace of China, you know, that we need to grasp two, um, two basic points. The first is that, you know, historically... Cambodia had been a pretty welcoming place for the Chinese. The common attitudes towards Chinese people have been relatively positive. The, the, you know, the real bogeyman of the Khmer nationalist imagination was the Vietnamese. And in fact, Cambodian attitudes towards the Vietnamese mirror almost perfectly Vietnamese attitudes towards the Chinese. And so what, what you have is a nation that, you know, or a kingdom that during its long, the long centuries of de decline you know, after the Angkorian Empire sort of crumbled, you know, its ter its territory was gradually sort of eaten away from east and west by um, Vietnam and the Kingdom of Siam from the west. Um, but the Vietnamese have been a particularly, you know, I think because the, the Cambodian-Vietnamese border also represents a cultural, linguistic, and religious fault line in a way that's not true of its Western border, the Vietnamese have really been the driving force of the, the forging of a Cambodian national identity. So this means that China is seen in relatively benign light as a power that can help keep the Vietnamese at bay um, and, and to sort of ensure Cambodia's territorial integrity um, from the depredations of its neighbors closer to hand. It's also the second factor that's, that's really driven this relationship um, between China and Cambodia is the large-scale UN um, UN-led effort to transform Cambodia into a democracy in the early 1990s. Um, there's, there's a lot of backstory here, and I won't go into a lot of the detail. But basically, in 1991, there was a massive international peace treaty that was signed that aimed to end Cambodia's civil war and reproduce the country as a as a Western-style democracy. Um, and this led to, you know, the deep involvement of many Western democracies in, in, in providing aid to the country and, and sort of pushing it towards um, democratic reforms. And for, you know, for various reasons, which, which I'm happy to expand on further, if you like, Prime Minister Hun Sen, who was incumbent at the time, viewed this, this project, this democracy building project with a huge amount of concern and fear <laughs> and sought to oppose it at every surprise, turn. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, and, you know, over the years, he was able to sort of gradually ensure that elections went his way. Uh, he was able to sort of make sure that his critics, you know, he kept his critics in a box, periods of repression, made sure that the CPP grip on power um, remained secure. And over time, he was able to pay less and less attention to the opinion of you know, a lot of his Western patrons, in large part due to China's rise. Right. And, you know, this, and this really spotlights China's, the appeal of China's doctrine of non-interference. You know, Hun Sen has been one of the most eager, you know... Um, advocates uh, of... Hun Sen is advocates, yes, of that principle. And, um, 
And so, you know, this this international-led effort has, you know, created a, a you know, a counter-reaction, which has compounded the historically accommodative view of Chinese power that, that Cambodia has had. And, and, and as a result, China's be- uh, Cambodia has become, you know, the, the, the friendliest nation towards China in Southeast Asia. Now, uh, you know, that's the government, of course. Right. At the grassroots, things are a little bit more complicated. And I think you, you mentioned Sihanoukville, Jeremy, that's, you know, the developments there were so rapid uh, and so sudden and so unbounded by any sort of effective regulation that the, you know, the backlash um, and the popular attitudes towards China, you know, have really taken a nosedive in Cambodia. Yeah. My yeah. most recent visits there, I've spoken to people and the the general attitude towards China and the Chinese people are, 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 are very sour. You know, and I think that, you know, the developments in Sihanoukville, when I went to visit, there was literally dozens of these small casinos that are, you know, run by very questionable PRC concessionaires catering overwhelmingly to Chinese tourists. You know, a lot of the reporting from Sihanoukville seems a little bit hyperbolic, but I was I was actually surprised to find that it was pretty much accurate. Um, <laughs> that, you know, you know, this I think illustrates well the the difficulty that the Chinese government has in keeping uh, a tight rein on the activities of its nationals. Right, you right. know, the, the the Belt and Road came to Cambodia and, and the Chinese government began promoting investment in the country. But, you know, the, the lack of regulation in Cambodia and the corruption in the country has enabled um, some of the, you know, a host of investments that are actually damaging China's reputation in the country and potentially its most important partnership. I, I have to say, though... Um you know, if if I if I think of Sihanoukville, which I've spent a little bit of time in, um, all of this was before the Chinese sort of uh, arrival there. All of the Westerners, mostly Americans, that I met there were engaged in the most dodgy enterprises <laughs> one could imagine. You know, this is not new. It's just that the Chinese built it to scale. That's exactly it. Like everything to do with China, the devil is in the scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, Sihanoukville, the, the Chinese developments in Sihanoukville hadn't really begun, or they'd maybe just begun when I left Cambodia to go to the U.S. in 2016. Within two or three years, it had transformed the city. Um, so what we're seeing is that the same old bad behavior scaled up, you know, in in line with China's <laughs> it's just population what, what, size. What, once it was a guest house with some sleazy American like owner arranging whatever sleazy stuff now it's like a 40-story hotel <laughs> with fountains and stuff yeah. and the same sleazy stuff uh, going on yeah, 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 yeah. yeah precisely yeah it's important to remember so, sebastian okay. i found the chapter on burma to have some parallels with that i mean it was really interesting in part i mean because so much can still go right from beijing's perspective i mean uh kind of like with with hun sen as on, on Song Suu Kyi finds herself sort of a pariah because of uh, the Rohingya issue. Uh, she's sort of drifting into Beijing's arms, or at least that's that's how a lot of people understand it. Uh, you know, they have so much in common, the shared defensiveness and allegations of gross human rights violations against Muslim minorities. Right, right. Uh, but there's also just a ton at stake, uh, the possibility of a land route via high-speed rail to the Indian Ocean, uh, give, give me a sense of where things stand right now with China and Burma. 
Is it still sort of in play, as it were? Well, the Burmese state finds itself in a in a liminal bind with regard to China. You have, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's this deep fear and suspicion of China, which runs through the ranks of the Burmese military and governing establishment. Of course, it's important to remember that Burma had an active communist insurgency, very actively funded by the Chinese Communist Party and supported by it, um, that lasted through to the, the end of the 1980s. And many of the senior uh, commanders in the Burmese military cut their teeth fighting um, uh, Chinese-backed Burmese communist insurgents in the north of the country. And so, you know, there's always been a deep suspicion and concern, as there is for every nation that shares a border with China or has experienced historical, you know, historically experienced encounters with, you know, Chinese state power. Um, and so, you know, there's the push to open relations with the West in 2011 and 2012 was driven at least in part by a desire to diversify Burma's foreign relations um, and build cooperative ties with Western democracies after years of isolation and pariah status. Um, the difficulty now is that many of these Western nations, after a period of euphoria uh, and you know that, that followed these political reforms and the election of Aung San Suu Kyi, to the country's leadership in 2015 is that the horrific treatment of the Rohingya minority of Rakhine State in the west of, of Burma has, you know, has soured a lot of these nations on engagement with the country. Right. And so there's not really, um, you know, this has reduced the options that the Burmese government has in terms of establishing a counterweight to China and, and, and maintaining a healthy diversity of in its foreign relations. Um, you know, not all of them have balked, of course. You know, the Japanese have continued to engage very pragmatically. Um, India has also taken a pragmatic position on, on, on its relations with, with Burma. But, you know, you have this constant tug towards Beijing, given the, the you know, the, the international pressure that the regime is coming right, under right. to, um, you know, over its various human, on various human rights questions, particularly the Rohingya issue. Um, and so there's sort of like an, an inevitable drift towards China, um, and due to the you know the deeply entrenched um, racial and sectarian divisions within the country, you know problems that are not going to be solved anytime soon. Um, it's been very difficult for the Burmese government to maintain, as I said, a healthy, balanced diet in its foreign relations. So Singapore, um, Singaporean diplomats seem to be pretty pleased with themselves about how well they deal with China, and uh, uh, some other people don't uh, agree with them, <laughs> some of whom we've interviewed recently. Um, uh, do you think that Singapore is able to navigate the space between the US and China uh, very well, Sebastian, or are they just all talk and no walk? Well, I think so far they've they've managed admirably. Um, you know, I, I quote somebody in my book saying, "Is you know, Singapore is the one nation in the world that can claim to have a special relationship with both China and the United States." But you know, to a certain extent, there was sort of a couple decades. I kind of refer to it as a golden age, where Southeast Asian nations had the benefit of a rising China and the economic, you know, benefits that came from that, without the you know, the having to face the power of a, you know, newly confident and resurgent Chinese state. And I think that, you know, to a large extent, 
Southeast Asia as a region has managed that balance pretty well up until, you know, maybe the, the end of the first decade of, of this century. I think Singapore has, you know, enviable resources in terms of its diplomatic core. It is, you know, its economic vitality um, has made it a very, you know, has, has given it, the, you know, the financial resources necessary to, to, to become a crucial partner of, of both superpowers. And it's, it's probably one of the most far-sighted nations in terms of its foreign relations, um, in terms of planning ahead and crafting a coherent strategy toward the, the coming age of great power competition. So yeah, I would say that Singapore has been, on the whole, pretty successful at managing this, this balance. Now, the difficulty going forward, of course, and this applies to the entire region, is that this balancing act of, of you know, um, being able to benefit from China's economy while, you know, remaining open to the stabilizing presence of the American military is becoming increasingly difficult to maintain, given the tensions between China and the U.S. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's quite a pickle. Let's let's talk about Indonesia, uh, Sebastian. Indonesia, given its enormous population, it's like what two hundred seventy million people. That's like forty percent of the total of ASEAN, uh, and with its very fraught relationship with its own ethnic Chinese population, uh, historically, you, you would think that it would be you know maybe more pivotal than it actually has been. Uh, but what you describe is a country that's actually been pretty low key. I mean, of course, like most of the countries in the region, it is walking a fine line, but its voice doesn't seem to be commensurate with its size and with its weight. Uh, can you give us a sense of what things look like viewed from Jakarta? Well, from from Jakarta's perspective, you know, Indonesia might have a, you know, a massive population, but it's it's a country with you know, serious nation building and economic challenges. Um, you know, any any government that comes to power in Jakarta is faced with the question of how to, you know, uh, improve the economic condition of its people and, and to bind this unwieldy archipelago of, of islands more tightly together. I mean, the fact that Indonesia, you know, you know, since since the end of the cult, well, since since independence, really, has been, you know, fighting a series of regional rebellions and, and, and separatist movements gives you an indication of just how artificial the idea of Indonesia right, is right, right. Um, and, and how much work has had to go into knitting together a national identity and bringing outlying regions you know, into the national fold. Yeah. I mean, there's still, you know, separatist or, you know, push for autonomy in West Papua, which the Indonesian government is, continues to, you know, um, repress quite fiercely. Um, the region of Aceh, um, in, you know, uh, prior to the, the, the tsunami of 2004 was, you know, had been waging in an insurgency for mm-hmm. for decades against the central state. Um, and so I think that when we talk about Indonesia punching below its weight, which is a common, you know, is, is a common theme in, in much Western commentary on the country, you know, it, it, it's difficult to extrapolate from population size to you know, a diplomatic clout sure, sure. Or, or economic clout in such a linear way. I think Indonesia is, is, is you know, is it's got a sort of centripetal um, uh, momentum to it. Is that you know, it's it's um, the, there's always uh, governments are always looking inwards yeah. and trying to sort out the, the country's manifold challenges. Trying to hold it really all together. Don't yeah. have a lot of bandwidth yeah. left over for for you know thinking about Indonesia's role on the global stage. That's completely understandable. 
Uh, speaking of Jakarta, I have a, a, a friend named Kate Lamb uh, who covers Southeast Asia for Reuters. Um, before Javier Bolsonaro of, of, of Brazil showed up, she would describe uh, tropical Trump and, and referred to Duterte, of course. Um, you know, he, he's very Trumpian, Duterte is, to the point where, like Trump, I mean, he courts authoritarian powers and delights in sticking his finger in the eye of Democratic allies, longstanding Democratic allies. Uh, what, what struck me was how you conclude in the chapter on the Philippines with the suggestion that actually he's changed things, that, that people in the Philippines aren't any longer going to be able to take for granted the, you know, close alignment with the U.S. that's characterized the relationships since the American conquest of the Philippines in the turn of the century. Um, can you can you talk about about that, about the changes in Duterte's foreign policy? Well, it's, you know, the Philippines finds itself in a very difficult position. You know, it's the one nation in Southeast Asia that is both a treaty ally of the United States and a claimant in the South China Sea. And so the Philippines sits on the front line of the you know, the, the, the escalating tensions between China and the United States. Um, it is, you know, I think there's a, as a, the current administration, you know, if we, if we put Duterte to one side for one second um, and, and look at his foreign policy team, you know, they're deeply conflicted about, um, you know, their position, um, their frontline position and to what extent they want American support. Right. I mean, I think they want the U.S. as a bulwark against China, but they don't want to be drawn into a war between the two powers, a war that would very likely be fought out in, in the front yard you know, right. areas close to right. the Philippines. Exactly. So there's this there's this very, you know, um, maintaining that balance um, has been incredibly difficult. Um, you mix Duterte into the mix and you, you, you have, you know, a further volatile compound, <laughs> I'll say. You know, a, a, a leader who is, you know, has, has historically been resentful of the United States for you know, a number of nationalist um, questions. Um, he's from the south of the Philippines, from Mindanao, where memories of um, massacres carried out by American occupying troops in the early part of the 20th century remain very much alive. Um, and he's also had association with left-wing political movements huh. and individuals. Um, and of course, you know, these are the main anti-American constituency in Philippine politics, um, a minority constituency, but a very vocal right. one historically. And I think that, you know, we see the same sort of tensions in the Philippines that we see in, in places like Burma and Cambodia, that when Western nations have come in and, and, and criticized um, leaders over, the, you know, the, on human rights questions or about, you know, on questions of democratic backsliding, you know, these leaders very often turn toward China, a country that's willing to engage without these questions being an issue and, and is, is, you know, is willing to offer you know, diplomatic support and economic financial aid without any, you know, with no strings, as, as they like to say. <laughs> yeah. So we've seen that same dynamic play out in the Philippines as well, where, you know, uh, Duterte's presided over a fierce war on drugs, which has led to, you know, upwards of 10,000 wow. deaths. Um, really I didn't realize that the death hole is so high. My God. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely horrific, really. I mean, it's it, more people have died under the... Duterte's drug war then died under martial law during Marcos under Marcos wow, wow. yeah so it's you know it, you know there's a good there's a good argument that western nations should be taking a stand on this question but you know it has created tensions in the relationship yeah with the Philippines under Duterte and I think I think that there's an overall sense in, you know in the country that 
you know, at least with this current administration, that you know it needs to craft an independent foreign policy that you know looks out for Filipino interests. And you know, uh, my concern with the Philippines is that you know while they have some of the most able individuals of any nation I visited in Southeast Asia, um, really sharp people I met while I was there. The structures and institutions are weak. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the president has a great deal of power to set the foreign policy of the country, and you see very little strategic follow through and consistency. Um, you know, with each, I, I spoke to a Singaporean um, foreign ministry official who lamented that every time there's a new election in the Philippines, a, a new a new country is born. Right. Um, and so, so, sorry, are you talking about the United States or the Philippines? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, Could you know, either. the Philippines <laughs> is a photostat of the American political system circa, you know, 1900. So in some ways we see similar dynamics, um, in the Philippines as we see in the United States, the focus on political freedoms over economic redistribution, um, the, the guns, you know, <laughs> the guns, massive in- income inequalities, and you know the the the, the rise of a, a figure like Duterte, who is able to um, you know capitalize on a lot of the resentments and economic um, suffering of of the population, you know, and and that's you know the 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 American influence in the Philippines runs very deep. Indeed, four more years of Trump, and we'd have the same kind of a failed state that we're seeing uh, there. Oh, anyway, uh, I, I it's already failed. Yeah. <laughs> it's you too did. late. You, 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 as I've reminded you before, you Americans just don't realize that it's already failed. I mean, we Americans. Right. I, I'm one right. of you now, but we're out there um, over the canyon, uh, like Wiley e. Coyote, still spinning our, our feet. Right, right. Spinning <laughs> your feet, S- Sebastian. Spinning, thank yeah. you so much. Uh, it's just a fantastic book, and uh, I cannot recommend it more highly. I can't wait to see what you got planned next. Um, well, let's move on to recommendations. Uh, first, a quick reminder that the best way to support the work that we're doing with Seneca and all the network shows is to subscribe to our SubChina Access newsletter. Uh, if you aren't already subscribing, please do. It's really amazing, and you'll find that it is money well spent. Okay, on to, on to recommendations. Uh, Jeremy, you are up first. What you got? Quick one. A True Grit, the novel by Charles Portis, upon which two movies have been based, one starring John Wayne, uh, uh, filmed in 1969, and one uh, more recent, I think 2010, by the Coen brothers. Um, but the book is so oh, great. Really? It is wonderful. It is the most, the best thing I've read in, in, in so, such a long time. Uh, it's kind of escapist, but not totally. Uh it's very American. It's great. It was out of print for a long time, but it's back in print. Right. And read this thing. Like, you need to underpress yourself by reading this okay. thing. True okay. Grit right. by Charles Great recommendation. I have seen the old film. have not seen the new one, but uh, I'll read the book. Forget the film. Okay. Read the book. Sebastian, what do you have for us? Well, um, I, I think I'd like to recommend a book that I actually bought and read while I was living in North Carolina. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's it's a book by the Austrian novelist Stefan Zweig, who who wrote a a memoir right towards the end of his life, called The World of Yesterday, and this this is a remarkably prescient book if you read it from the standpoint of 2020. Um, it you know he describes he wrote this I believe during the Second World War, um, while he was in exile in France shortly before his death by suicide. Um, and he describes the the world of the pre-World War 
World War One era in Central Europe. Um, you know, this this remarkable period of economic advancement, of liberal optimism. The Belle Epoque. And mm. yes, uh, you know, uh, and and cultural fecundity. Um and and the sort of complacency that characterized that era that you know that everything was secure and safe and nothing could possibly derail you know the constant incremental improvement of the societies of the time um uh, and and i think that reading that today you know you get a you know this quite jolting and disorienting sense that the same thing is playing out today and i i, I found it to be you know a very um you know kind of an unnerving book, but also, you know, a, a book that reminds us that a lot of these things we take for granted in terms of, you know, um, democratic institutions and, and liberal principles are, are fragile. And they were ne they've never been as secure as we've, you know, uh, over the last few decades assumed, um, it, uh, you know, often assumed. Wow, that um, so, sounds yeah. great. Stefan Zweig. Say, it, the name, say, say, say the name of the book and the author again, please. So it's Stefan Zweig. That's Z-W-E-I-G. Mm -hmm. Um, Stefan with an F and the book's called The World of Yesterday yeah it's a really re remarkably prescient yeah. book and I think it you know fits our current era uh, <laughs> alarmingly yeah, well not, not sure I want to read that I'm reading enough stuff that's just got me depressed well read True Grit it'll uh, you know, okay. it'll uh, divert you for a moment I'm not sure what my recommendation will do to people's moods it really depends but I'm going to recommend a Swedish progressive metal uh, band called So it, it will it will destroy all of no, our no, moods no. Kaiser. Kaiser. Yeah, Sebastian Malik, it's, it's really great the band is called Soen S-O-E-N and no umlaut uh, it's it's kind of a super group that features uh, artists from a bunch of other bands that I like um, start with the album Lykea L-Y-K-A-I-A -A from 2017. Uh, work your way forward and backward through the catalog of, I think, four or five albums. Um, if you like bands like Tool or Opeth, um, especially Opeth's more recent stuff without the, the death growling, you know, with its song, because it's all sung. It's not it's not growled. I think you'll dig this. It's really melodic, but also really satisfyingly savage where it needs to be. And because it's prog metal, it's very cerebral and it's very chopsy. Uh, but without being like over the top show off each hopsy. It's, it's the focus is on really good songwriting. Uh, it's great. I think their early albums sound a little too much like Tool, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, great, great music. You should check it out. Sebastian, thank you once again. I mean, it was really good to see you. Uh, and uh, I can't wait to. You too, yeah, Kaiser. Yeah, let's, let's do this again soon. I want to get you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Kaiser, I'm going to run. Okay, bye. Okay, see you, Jeremy. All right, Jeremy. Nice to meet you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.